with all our Nobel laureates and everything, we didn't know what was causing climate change. And poverty, violence, war, mass immigration to Europe, changing the political face of Europe, all of these things, the collapse of one civilization after another. More civilizations have been destroyed by farmers than armies. Armies have destroyed very few civilizations, as far as I can see. They change them, but the civilization continues. When we farmers or agriculturists do it, we do a good job. They don't rise again. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project, a grassroots farmer-led movement with an ad on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock. You just heard from Alan Savory, the founder of Holistic Management International. He was speaking to the fact that all communities on earth depend deeply on agriculture, making our focus on it non-negotiable. Alan's attention to the importance of livestock managed grazing, and in-depth consideration for our own human behavior has changed how thousands of farmers live and steward their land. Before we get to our conversation with Alan, we're asking you to please take a moment today to leave us a rating and review. Please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already, and tell your favorite people about our show and and our movement. Now let's get back to the conversation between my co-director, Dave Chapman, and ecologist and livestock farmer, Alan Savory. I'm honored to have Alan Savory as my guest today. Alan is um, very well known. He, he uh, gave a TED Talk that was seen by over 7 million people at the last time I saw. And um, he's the author of Holistic Management, A Common Sense Revolution to Restore Our Environment. And I believe, Alan, that you have an upcoming book called The End of Impossible. Hopefully, um, yes. Yeah, uh, excellent. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I thought that it would be uh, really helpful for people to see where you started. Uh, You didn't start with holistic management. You started down in the trenches trying to fix problems. And could you talk about that? How how you came, you know, what, what your big challenge was that led you to start thinking differently? The big challenge, Dave, was... When I left university, I think I was probably the first biologist, game ranger, you know, in any game department in Africa. I was in remote and wild areas, and I quickly became responsible for an enormous area about the size of the UK. I was only 21, and uh, I was responsible for the management of the wildlife in this vast area. And we had enormous, uh, most of the country's future national parks that we were setting aside, uh, you know, areas as those. And I was seeing terrible degradation. And it was my responsibility. There were no livestock to blame. There there was nothing that uh, I'd been taught at university or that we scientists blamed for that. But I was responsible for managing. So... Very early, I became terribly conscious that there was a management problem. And uh, I actually had uh, Fraser Darling, Frank Fraser Darling, a British ecologist who was sent out fact-finding and reporting. He stayed with me for six weeks while I took him around swamps and plains and so on. 
and um, endless nights over the campfire where I was saying, what should we do? What do you know? What, what should we do? And he had no answers. And um, could, you, could you describe the degradation that you were seeing so we have some understanding? Yes, essentially bare ground and soil erosion, gullies forming, uh, riverine areas getting destroyed, and riverbanks beginning to collapse unnaturally. And the only thing I could put it to was fire, but we were taught that fire was necessary, and fire is still the policy of management nearly 70 years later. Um, but I saw that the fire was causing bare ground and damage. So I tried to get a paper published on it, but that went against the beliefs of all scientists, including many today. And of course, I, it couldn't be peer-reviewed, never got published. So, so I just, that you asked me when I became very concerned, it was that early, and I became concerned more with the management than with my research. Okay. That's a, that's a huge responsibility to be dealing with an area that size for such a young person. So what was, what did you try? Uh, you were very concerned with the degradation of the land in an apparently natural system. So what did you try? Well, the, the very first was I believed that because of my university training that livestock were the main cause of desertification. I was seeing desertification, but there were no livestock because of tessie fly and uh, sleeping sickness. And I began, in fact, coined the words game ranching, and then later worked with two American Fulbright scholars, and we started the game ranching industry, which is now a multi-billion dollar industry in Southern Africa, Texas, and so on. And we were wrong. We, we thought we could stop the degradation under just wildlife management, but we couldn't. And every national park around me is deteriorating, the hunting areas are deteriorating, so all the wildlife areas are deteriorating as well. And then I made the mistake that I mentioned in the TED talk, where I, like any scientists, we believe uh, or we see what we believe. We don't believe what we see, we're just human. And seeing all this damage to trees, etc., it was obviously now too many elephants because there weren't any cattle to blame. So I proved there were too many elephants, and I talked about that in the TED talk. We got my work uh, inspected and they went into it in fine detail. Uh, fellow scientists could not fault my work, and so we went ahead and the government shot, in the next few years, over 40,000 elephants. But the situation got worse, and it's still getting worse today as you're interviewing me. Right? So clearly that was a monumental blunder by all of us scientists, but I confessed to it and started to say there has to be some solution. Um, and then, <coughs> having developed the game ranching industry with colleagues, as I said, hating livestock as I did, a couple of ranchers, first an old ranching couple, came to see me and asked for my help. I was surprised to even see them. And I said, well, come in, have some tea, uh, sit down, uh, sat them down and said, you know, what is it? And they said, we, we 
desperate. We need your help. Our land is deteriorating. We've followed every bit of advice of consultants, research stations, rain scientists, but we know our land is deteriorating. Can you help us? And I said, oh my God, ranchers love land as much as I do. That was a big awakening. And so I agreed to help them on one condition, and that condition was that it would be the blind leading the blind. I said, I have no idea what to do. I am just determined to solve the problem. And so I began helping ranchers, and then from there realized that livestock were absolutely essential to stopping the land degradation. And that without livestock, as I mentioned in the third talk, it's simply going to be impossible to stop desertification or climate change. So that realization came fairly early in the 1960s. And then actually in a fairly short time uh, was getting the first successes where we were reversing the degradation of the land very quickly uh, because what I did was uh, realized that all the ways pastoralists ran their animals what people call mob grazing, herding, rotational grazing, grazing systems, none of these was working, uh, in, as, as I later found also in America, not working in Africa. And so really, I just didn't know what to do. We knew we had to use livestock, we didn't know how. And as I mentioned many times and wrote in the book, rather than reinvent the wheel, I started looking at all the management methods and processes and so on there were around the world in any profession to see if I could find clues. And I looked at business planning, all sorts of things, because some sort of planning process had to replace uh, prescriptive systems, rotational grazing or anything of that sort. And Vazan had to establish that as well. And I tried his simple planning process but it wasn't adequate for the complications of, of Africa and our climate. So I knew he was right, but we'd need a more com uh, sophisticated process. And I found what I was looking for in, frankly, it was fairly easy because I was trained as an infantry officer and I was in a war. And so I simply used the Sandhurst planning procedures that European armies had established over more than 300 years of how do you produce the best possible plan at any moment in time in immediate battlefield conditions when men are exhausted, tired, confused, wounded, whatever, and you have to train people quickly in times of war. How had they solved this problem? And I just took their solution to it, and then I only had to adapt it to ranching, wildlife, crops, etc., and I had to adapt it to longer time periods because on the land we had to plan for a year or more, whereas battles we fought for 20 minutes or an hour or a day or whatever. Um, so that technique worked immediately, and please believe me, I've never seen it fail yet. I have seen thousands of people fail to do it. So can you give me uh, an example of one person who did do it and had the outcome that they desired? How did that look like on the ground when you, when you applied that way of problem solving? Well, let me look at it right here where I am. I'm sitting here 
on the Africa Center land. This is on a ranch I donated. When I bought this ranch way back in the um, late 80s or early 70s, it was badly deteriorating. It had no elephants, no buffalo. They were fenced off by a foot and mouth fence, had some kudu and impala and sable and so on. And the old Afrikaans farmer whom I bought it from ran a hundred head of cattle and he was going broke and I bought it for a low price in cash. Now, he wasn't managing well. If he'd managed with the best of range science, he might have run 200 head uh, on the knowledge that we had. Now, here we are years later. It's um, winning international awards. Uh, we are running 600 cattle, not 100. Some days we have anywhere from 100 to 500 elephants. Some days we have anywhere from 40 or 50 buffalo to three to 500 buffalo. We have all the wildlife. And as I talk to you, we're in our 17th bad year with rain average or below. It's the longest run of bad weather in my life. And the last two have been really low. And yet, I could take you out right now today and show you fresh water flowing out of the ground where we haven't known it for a hundred years. That has been done with absolutely nothing but using the cattle, no fencing, no mob grazing, no rotation, just holistic planned grazing process. So I, I have talked to a number of fairly prominent um, livestock ranchers in North America in preparation for this, because I wanted to know is, what do you all think of Alan Savory and his, and his ideas? These are some of the best in North America, and um, you have a very, very high reputation among them. So I was curious, because I know that many academics challenge your thinking, and I was curious what the people who are actually succeeding believe, and they believe that your ideas are correct. Not everybody agrees with every, every detail, but they believe that, that your thinking is realistic and, and workable. So what, do almost, what does almost everybody in the world think agriculture is? They think it is growing crops and running livestock. Is that not right? Yes. Okay, now... All agriculture throughout history has been organic and grass-fed until modern times. There was nothing but organic, nothing but grass-fed, and more than 20 civilizations failed with nothing but all organic. Is that what you, Dave, really want? I, I agree with you, Alan, and I'll go there, but I would point out that not all civilizations have failed. China went for 4,000 years on organic agriculture. Yes, uh, yes. Lower Egypt went on for 10,000 years. That's the longest. Well, Lower That's Egypt was cheating because they got the flooding. But I think in China, I think it is a fair example of sustainable agriculture. Um, all we have is the evidence of sustaining civilizations for a long time, as you say, 4,000 years, on major seashores, big rivers, or lower Egypt, where it took the destruction of Ethiopia to do it. 
So it took the yes. transport of food over vast differences. Now we're trying to do it with the transport of food, mostly on fossil fuels. But let's not go there. I just made the point that agriculture, or I wanted to make the point that what we're calling organic sustainable, there's nothing I'm seeing in it that wasn't being done by people two to 4,000 years ago. Now, I see agriculture a little differently, and, I, and I'm not the only one. I see agriculture as the production of food and fiber that sustains humans from the world's land and waters. Now, if we look at it like that, then forestry, fisheries, wildlife, all of these are agriculture, along with cropping, etc. And then if we look at, because climate change is a deep concern to you and me and everyone. Now, if we look at the whole planet now, it is engaged in agriculture, almost everywhere. And of that, only 6% of the planet's surface is cropland, is crop production, 6%. And yet all of it is, almost all of it is engaged in agriculture. If we look at the land in the world, only about 20%, roughly, including in America, is involved in crop production. So we're looking at vast areas of the world that have to sustain us, right, from agriculture, fisheries and so on, um, and we're not bringing that into most of the discussion, uh, almost of all of the discussion. And you and I are having this discussion today, and you've kindly invited me to, for one reason, and that is because of climate change and because of all the poverty, the violence, all the symptoms of desertification and the inequalities of wealth and the things that are rising from agriculture. And today, agriculture, mainstream agriculture, is, if we look at the facts and the figures and the soil erosion, it is the most destructive industry ever in the history of mankind, more so than mining, coal, oil, anything else. So I'm very concerned with agriculture as a whole, and not just looking at crops or, or livestock. <clears throat> and then if, um, if we're going to do something uh, about it, a basic common sense point that you'll grasp immediately, and most people do, is that if you've got a problem, if you don't address the cause of the problem, your chance of success is zero. So we've got a big problem. We've got a problem with agriculture, across the board. Okay. Now, we've also got a problem with climate change. Now, I said earlier, when I began as a young uh, biologist, game ranger, in my uh, 20s, right, I quickly realized I had a problem, a management problem with, with the wildlife. So I've been focused on, on management really all my life. In, in one way or, or another. Now, if we uh, look at desertification, as I spoke of in the TED Talk, we knew for thousands of years that humans were causing that. That was never denied. There are ancient texts, I'm told, thousands of years ago that blame the nomads and the too many sheep for causing the deserts. So humans knew it. We knew we had a management problem. It was a management problem to solve. Now, with climate change, we had this massive denial, confusion, corporations deliberately causing confusion, etc. Only recently, 
did we get acknowledgement from almost all scientists in the world on what is causing climate change. We got that acknowledgement when the, it was accepted that the bulk of scientists said we are causing climate change. Humans are causing climate change. Now, if you take that acceptance by the bulk of scientists, it has only one possible interpretation. We're doing it by management. There's no other way to do it. There's nobody out there doing it. There's, it's us doing it. And the only way we can do it is through how we manage our resources. So finally we have, like we had it with desertification, acknowledgement humans are causing it. Now, if humans are causing it, we now know what we need to focus on. And that's what I am desperately, at this age of my life, trying to get my fellow scientists, my farmers, my friends, everybody, to please, for the sake of our grandchildren, future generations, let's not argue about practices, agricultural practices, mining practices, all these things. Let's focus on how we decide the practices, because that is what management is involved or involves. So that's what I'm trying to do. And if you look at that, let me just give you a, a, an example I thought of uh, for us this afternoon as I was thinking. If we took a, a simple thing like organic, uh, let's say we took organic fiber production as a part of agriculture. Okay, so we could produce it from organic cotton, wood, forests, organic, you know, keeping chemicals out, wool, hair, leather. Those are all agricultural production of fiber to sustain humans. Now, we might, if we just argued practices, we would say all these practices need to be organic. Now, if you look at the cause of climate change, and that is how we make decisions, and that, as I wrote in my textbook, has to be holistic, not reductionist. If we look at that, then, sorry, this wouldn't be correct. Some countries, it would do far less social damage, economic damage, environmental damage, if they made their artificial wood out of oil, and if they made their fiber out of oil, instead of cotton destroying soils and felling forests to put cattle in them, etc., you see, you've got to look at it in a much more complicated light than, than, than we are doing. So that's what I'm anxious for people to do, is to start talking about how we make the decisions rather than arguing over the practices. Because the other point I need to make is if we're going to survive and uh, manage to reverse desertification and address climate change, you and I can choose to change light bulbs. We can choose to ride a bicycle to, to work. We can choose to change the practices on our farm, as thousands of farmers, thank goodness, are doing. We can choose to change to run our livestock differently, as thousands of ranches and pastoralists are beginning to do. But those will never go to scale. They won't go to scale for another 100 to 200 years. 
Why? Because of complexity. There are only three things we manage. Almost everything we produce. We make or produce. Look at everything in the room around you. Every single thing. It involved technology and something that was made or produced. Look at the agriculture we're talking of. We produce food, we produce wool, we produce hide, etc. Now, everything that we produce or make in system science is described as a complicated system. It is not complex. It is complicated, the scientific definition of complexity. It doesn't work if you stop producing. It isn't there. It doesn't work if a battery goes flat, a part breaks, anything like that. It stops. It is not self-organizing. Nothing in agriculture is self-organizing in what we produce. All right? Now, if we look at what we manage, which is where the problem lies, all right, there are only three things we manage on this entire planet. We manage our lives, our communities, and our organizations. We manage humans. We don't make them, we don't produce them, other than our kids, and we manage them. We manage nature from which we produce energy, electricity from atoms or from coal or from oil or from hydroelectric or from solar. We're producing it from nature. Right? So we manage nature. All the food we're producing, we're producing it, but we're managing nature. And the only other thing we manage is our economies. You don't produce an economy. You manage an economy. And there is no economy that can sustain any nation, ultimately, other than one based on the photosynthetic process on regenerating soil. So we've got three areas we manage, and they're complex. They're all self-renewing. They all keep working. If a whole board dies, if dozens of species die, if a whole economy collapses, like happened to us here twice, all right, when the entire economy collapsed, the whole country kept going with government and formal economy collapsed, currency collapsed, whole country kept going, just ordinary people in the black market. It's self-organizing. It kept going. So that's where we've got to focus. Uh, and I agree completely that it's, it's as, as Al Gore famously said, it's, it's important to change the light bulbs, but, but it's more important to change the laws. It's more important to change things at, a, at an operational societal level. How to do that is the question that we all face. And I think that that um, I I appreciate very much the power of uh, looking at how we think, what are the questions that we ask, and and where do we seek the solutions. But I also see that, it, as you say, when we're dealing with complexity, which is us, it's very difficult to actually create culture shift, culture change so that we think differently. You have suggested that uh, uh, reductionism is actually genetically encoded and that we have always had a, a, a reductionist perspective on problem solving. Did I get that right? Yes, uh, you did. That's, that's in my, <laughs> my book. 
and and you you're very correct and Al Gore was very correct when he says you've got to change things at scale you've got to do it through policy that that's that's how we do it there's no other way we do it we do it through institutions organizations and policy but as i said earlier institutions we are managing and they're complex and we're managing nature which is complex and economies that are complex all right so do, how do you unwind that it's really amazingly simple in principle alan for people who haven't read your textbook can you lay out for people the difference between a holistic approach and a reductionist approach because this is a very very powerful important point okay <laughs> let me try i've got to have a bit of fun with you for for a moment you know there's there's very little difference between a friendly bull in a china shop and an angry bull in a china shop <laughs> and and when you talk about the difference between a holistic approach and a reductionist approach uh, if the government of any country uh, took either approach the end result would be failure okay so it's it's not about taking approach the there are we would be arrogant if we thought we were the first people in history to think holistically and try to take a more holistic approach there's evidence apparently of native american trying to think seven generations ahead seeing their deep connection to land and so on but none of that helped because everywhere all cultures the the environment deteriorated except in humid or near perennially humid environments so all right what do we need to do what we actually need to do is change the management so let me describe the difference between reductionist management and holistic and it's fairly easy now the human belief is there's thousands of ways of managing no we found that's wrong we found if you peel the onion in every way humans have ever managed you come to the same core from the most sophisticated from scientific team to bushman right so when we are managing today or developing policy all right we have an objective or a goal some objective and the context or the reason for that objective let's say 99% of the time is to meet a need meet a desire or to address a problem think of your life and you'll think of very very little outside that All right same for all governments now um when we do that we are reducing the web of incredible social cultural environmental economic as i said the three things we're managing we're reducing that web of indivisible unavoidable complexity to the reason or context for the policy or the action in our family to meet a need a desire or solve a problem that is the main reason for climate change right there and for civilizations failing i believe now when we do that let's go a little further so that when we manage holistically or develop policies holistically we have to bring in a new concept totally new concept that wasn't in any branch of science wasn't in any religion in the world wasn't in any philosophy in the world we need a holistic context a context that describes 
the lives we want to lead, how we want our life to be, tied to our life-supporting environment, habitat, environment, tied to our behavior. And that gives us a context now, a holistic context, one overriding one for all policy, all actions as we meet our needs, our desires, or address problems. The other flaw in how all humans have always made decisions is that we're a tool-using animal. So you and I, right now, can't even drink water unless I use technology. Unless I go to the nearest river and drink with my hands or my mouth. We cannot do anything. We cannot use our creativity, our labor, all the money in the world until you pick up a tool. When you pick up a tool, you can start to produce something, do, make something, etc. Now, what tools do humans have? The human belief, the belief of every scientist, my belief at the beginning was there are thousands of tools, hundreds of tools. When I was at university, plenty of tools. When I, in the TED talk, said there's only one option, I got severely criticized. What sort of scientist says there's only one option? There are always hundreds of options. Are there? When I was training 2,000 scientists over the two-year period I mentioned, I got those people to list every single tool they'd ever been trained to use in any university in the world, in any profession in the world, and in their private lives. I got nearly 2,000 people to do that, scientists. They listed thousands of tools, and then we broke them into categories. Two tools, technology and fire. And the only other thing that we could put into the category of a tool was the idea, the concept of letting the environment for biodiversity rest, for biodiversity to recover, what we call conservation today. So the idea of resting the environment so it could recover was the idea that failed for you when you were managing um, a, a national park the size of the UK. No, no, it, it wasn't, but it was. It, it's a bit complicated to explain here. The the idea of of resting the environment took a long time because I realized when we finally did break through to consistent results, I realized that nobody, no institution could ever have discovered it. No individual could in any one country. It, it took a lot of coincidences and things that had to fall into place uh, for us to, to unravel it. And one of the hardest was that resting the environment uh, takes two forms, partial rest or total rest. And it was American research plots that finally gave us that clue. Uh, and that both have very bad effects on a about two-thirds of the world, they have an adverse effect and uh, of the world's land. But on most of the world, in oceans, wetlands, rivers, any wet environment, perennially wet, east and west coasts of America, uh, basically the tropical forests, any Britain, France, you know, these areas of the world where it's nearly perennially humid, they have a very good effect. And in fact, 
the most powerful tool to restore biodiversity in uh, marine environments, uh, water environments, tropical forests, is just cons conservation, rest them. But if you come here, there are, I think, 36 national parks surrounding where I live in these countries. They are our most shocking, worst imaginable examples of habitat destruction for wildlife, biodiversity loss, habitat destruction for European, for, for humans, all humans, uh, habitat destruction for everything, and climate change. Now, national parks represent the peak of our management. There's nothing you can blame there. You've got people right now, as I talk, wanting to cull 100,000 elephants in Botswana. Didn't they learn anything from the 40,000 we culled years ago and it got worse? And you've got environmental and scientists who won't go ahead because of the emotion. The public would rightly be so angry. We shouldn't be culling any elephants. We don't have enough animals in this area to keep the land alive. Could you explain that? Because I know that most people don't understand that. Yeah, it's almost identical to the cattle situation. For thousands of years, we said if cattle are causing damage, they're too many. It's the same with the elephants. They're causing damage, we say they're too many. No, they're too static. The cattle were too static. And I, I got people to understand that, Dave, with a very simple analogy, and, uh, and I'll use it again. If you and I had a, a hut up on the hilltop, and way down the bottom of the hill is a river, and every day we go down to get water and bring it back to our hut. And we do this every day. But being lazy, we take a donkey. Or we have an elephant. Okay, so we've got some animal. And we go down with it, and we come back after loading it with water. And we do this for every day of the year. So we have 365 elephant or donkey days of trampling, dunging, urinating, browsing, grazing. You and I can see, everybody can see in their mind, oh my God, you'll have a terrible path eroding down the hill. The riverbank will be all bare where the animals stood for 365 days. We looked at that for thousands of years and said, you've got too many animals. Now, if I had done that with, let's say, 365 animals on one day, you'd have had exactly the same animal days of grazing or browsing and trampling. Now, where I previously had it every day of the year and never gave plants time to grow, now I've had it on one day. And on the day that I do it, it looks terrible. All the dung, all the urine, all the trampling where they trottle on the bank, it looks terrible today. And I saw that way back in the 1950s and was trying to puzzle it out. But if I let a day lapse and then another day and another day and I let the same time lapse a year, all right, every day plants are beginning to grow. Beetles are coming in, insects are coming in, worms are starting to do, birds are coming in. Everything's starting to happen day after day after day. And if I let the same time lapse, you would come back at the end of the year and you'd say, what happened here? The greenest strip is down the hill and on the riverbank. That's basically what it's about. And that's why livestock becomes so essential 
and why even the national parks are deteriorating and the tremendous results we're seeing here we could not do without the livestock even though we've got the buffalo the lions the leopards the wild dogs the hyenas the sable the giraffe you know we've got all these animals but we the the we're using the livestock like a tractor that doesn't use diesel, doesn't pollute. I can't park it. I've got to be planning a year ahead where it's going to be, why it's going to be there. Right place, right time, right reason for the right behavior. It's interesting because uh, these problems that are so huge in brittle areas are uh, out of sight and out of mind for people uh, living in more human environments. They don't understand. Um, you know, I look around and everything I see is green. Uh, even in the winter, when it's covered with snow, all the trees are green. It's a, it's a, different, it's a different reality. It is, Dave, and it's, it's very difficult for everyone. I, I mean, I'm terribly empathetic with everybody and trying to struggle. I know my own struggles and how stupid I feel now that I couldn't see it earlier. <clears throat> and what makes it difficult, for, particularly for Americans, is they keep talking about bison. I believe there were three species of bison. I'm told there's something like 11 large mammals in North America, North America today. There used to be 40 more large mammals, apparently. That's what you've got to look at, not the time of one species of bison left because humans had killed everything else off, or Australia, where nearly all the large marsupials had been killed off. And there's good research in Australia. I like it. Fellow Tim Flannery wrote a lovely book, The Future Eaters. And in that, he points out from the pollen record that the bulk of Australia was a fire-phobic vegetation before humans. When the Aborigines arrived about 50,000 years ago, it began changing to a fire-dependent vegetation, and now Australia is suffering megafires. That began 50,000 years ago, when humans killed off nearly all that animal life that was maintaining vegetation and soils, and changed it to trying to maintain soils, vegetation, and animals with fire. And saying yes. fire is natural, because we get occasional lightning fires, and you can see why today, <clears throat> almost anything, I mean, right now, as we talk, Botswana, I read the other day, is wanting to imitate Aborigine burning in Australia. Oh, my goodness. It's because they've got no tool except technology or fire. Because of our high level of technology, we have come to be tremendously impactful on the planet, and you're suggesting that even 50,000 years ago, humans were tremendously impactful on the planet with a with a low level of technology. That that as soon as we got fire and tools, we started to really change the planet, and now we're changing it um, to to perhaps be steering it towards uh, the sixth extinction event. With all our Nobel laureates and everything. We didn't know what was causing climate change. And poverty, violence, war, mass immigration to Europe, changing the political face of Europe, all of these things, the collapse of one civilization after another, more 
Civilizations have been destroyed by farmers than armies. Armies have destroyed very few civilizations, as far as I can see. They change them, but the civilization continues. When we farmers or agriculturalists do it, we do a good job. They don't rise again. So that nobody was being stupid. None of us were. I think it, I'm excited that we find finally, oh, there was a reason why we had these unintended consequences over and over again to our best intentions. Let me, let me throw out um, a question. Right now in America, 99% of the meat, milk, and eggs is coming from confinement CAFO operations. And I would say those are the complete opposite. They're the complete uh, epitome of reductionist management. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. That, that's at its worst. It's part of what I said earlier, where agriculture is the most destructive industry ever in history. And there's ever-increasing information about our health and the diseases we're getting and so on. I'd, other people know far more than I do, but but yes, that's just part of it. We, we One of the most urgent things is for every nation to develop a policy holistically. If we don't do that, we're pretty well sunk because most of, remember I said we're managing humans, nature, and economies? Well, without agriculture, you can't have a church, can't have an army, can't have a politician, can't have a university, can't have an orchestra, choir. You can have nothing without agriculture. It is the most urgent policy to change, and that's why the Savory Institute concentrates on land, land management, agriculture. We concentrate there because that is the most urgent and where we'll get the biggest return uh, towards saving the future for the youth of today. So, so you know, uh, it sounds corny, but I love the old thing that when I point a finger at you, they're three pointing back at me. So it sounds a bit corny, but I'm trying to get beyond blaming. I think we're all in this boat together. The damn boat is sinking. We better start focusing, uh, getting beyond the blaming and all this stuff, and start focusing on what matters. I, I would love nothing better today than to see the world leaders just come and say, all right, listen to this guy. Let's check if he's talking nonsense or not. Why don't we take one very neutral, bland case, the management of national parks. If I'm saying management is the problem, then if we, should, if we could look at national parks, they should be the best of management in the world. There's no cattle to blame, no corporations, no greed, no corruption, no, no oil, no coal. There's nothing to blame. All right? So if the management of national parks is going wrong, and they are leading to climate change, surely the dead canaries are falling off the perch and warning us that management is the problem. Now, we could easily, relatively easily, just take one country like my country here and just say, all right, let's just do it because the, the benefits are so great for the world and the downside is so small. Let's just let and encourage one country like this to develop a national parks policy holistically and just let the world leaders observe and the media and all the world scientists just let them observe and take this situation and let us develop policy holistically. 
I would just, I would die happy if that could happen. Because I think the world would see what I'm talking about. And if it failed, and we couldn't develop a policy, a few hundred thousand dollars would have been wasted, and a little, and a year of time lost. If it succeeded, the benefits to humanity would be beyond measurement in monetary terms or human lives lost. The state of our national parks is a greater danger than poachers in some of these cases. So once everybody acknowledges that, including the wildlife organizations, right now we can say, well, let's introduce another idea. Instead of developing the policies as we've done to deal with problems like borders and poaching and all of these reducing the complexity, let's develop a holistic context. And we would get all of those people to, with proper facilitation to describe how they want their lives to be. How does that look? And I promise you, Dave, it'll be the same. The head of the largest, best-funded wildlife organization in the world wants a better life, and it'll be spelt out just like the poacher, just like the headman, just like the chiefs, just like me and all the people who live around with the animals. We will describe, all of us as human beings, how we want our lives to be. And then we will say, right, if that's what our lives are to be like, what must this environment be like two, three hundred years from now for our descendants to live a life like that. And we would describe the environment healthy, water cycles functioning, effective, high biodiversity, regenerating soils, and everything that a national park should be. And we would be describing that on the surrounding lands, etc. Right? And when we've got that, not in species and detail, but in process, how biodiversity functions, how our environment functions, water cycle, nutrient cycle, solar energy flow to all life. So we would describe that. And then we would describe our behavior. How are we going to have to be, not marketing, not branding, not anything. At the end of the day, you and I, Dave, and every human being is judged by their behavior. So we now describe how we're going to behave towards one another in these parks and the surroundings. And now, essentially, we have a holistic context. And in that context or that reason, we would now say, let's look at the problems we're facing. Yeah. I think that many people in America are so uh, divorced from how food is grown the food that they eat every day, that they, that's a hard idea for them to grasp, that agriculture is even important. Yeah, it is. One thing that is, seems important to me is that we need to be able to connect farmers and farming with eaters. And uh, gosh, they're so disconnected so much now. And that's what I hope that these responsible uh, certifications with integrity will do so that uh, people are busy. They don't know. 
and they go to the store and what do they know? So how do we, how do we build that connection between the city and the country? The political power, the voting power, the, the power to insist that policies be holistic has all shifted to the cities. It's not in the rural areas anymore. So the rural people can do the best they can, but the cities are, need to wake up to this because I've, I've heard it said, you know, people say that with climate change and so on, the suffering will be terrible in the poor areas and the poor countries. No, no, no. The worst suffering is going to be in the cities. It's going to be unimaginable suffering if the cities don't wake up and start insisting that policies be holistic. They're going to be where the greatest suffering is. The, not the people in the rural areas. They know how to look after themselves pretty well. City people, you know, it's, it's, everything is, is now done by institutions and organizations. And, you know, and I mentioned that earlier. Uh, if I just take a pencil like this, who in the world knows how to make one? I haven't a clue. If I take a toothbrush, I haven't a clue how to make one. Most people haven't. It's got to be done now in an institution, a company, a co an organization. It really is a problem. And it's the same with most of what we're doing in agriculture and everything now. Scale is what matters, doing it on a large scale. City folks and getting them more knowledgeable so that they understand absolutely essential because we will sink or swim on the policies we develop, not on what we do on our individual farms that doesn't go to scale. Absolutely, Alan. Thank you. So, Alan, before we end, do you have any thoughts about the future? Any, any words to help guide people? Um, I, I'm constantly just obsessed with what we talk about today. I'm at the end of my life now, I'm fading fast. I, we only get one innings to play for your team. At some point, you're going to get caught, stumped, bowled, or run out, as we say in cricket. Uh, my innings is coming to a close, and I'm just terribly anxious that the youth really wake up and start demanding action, but not any action, demanding that we just begin to develop policies holistically. If we can do that, the youth of today in all cultures have a fighting chance. If we don't do that, I'm glad I won't be here. Yeah. Alan Savory, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, um, Dave. I uh, so appreciate it, and I will, this is only the beginning for me of really considering what you're writing and thinking and talking about, so thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. I've really enjoyed it. I hope we did some good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 23. Please join us next time for an interview with climate activist and author Bill McKibben. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.